Welcome to the Tidal Year, a series about the joy of swimming. With the help of some special guests, we'll discover the human stories behind why we swim. Together, we'll share tales from the places that helped us fall in love with swimming. From Lidos to lakes, by leisure centers in the ocean, I can't wait to dive into these magical places. I'm your host, writer and wild swimmer, Freya Bromley, and every week I'll be chatting to a new explorer, swimmer, author, or campaigner about what water means to them. Before we dive into this episode, I'd like to thank today's sponsor, TryHard. I love being in the water, but I don't love what pool chemicals like chlorine do for my skin and hair. TryHard develop water sports specialized skin and hair solutions that eliminate those negative effects of pool chemicals and ocean salts. I'm thrilled to share with all listeners of the Tidal year a very exclusive 15% off when you use code TIDAL at tryhard.co. This week's guest is the author of one of my favorite books of 2021, Small Bodies of Water. Nina's writing is lyrical and poetic. She blends memoir with really powerful writing on the natural world. And I'm not the only one who thinks so, but she's also the winner of the prestigious Nan Shepherd Prize. She writes some mouthwatering essays about food too, so be sure to check those out. Now there's a little bit of scuffling in the background at the beginning of this episode, and that's because Nina had her new puppy Kaya with her, a fab new companion for a walk and a swim at the ponds. Let's dive in. So thank you so much for joining me, Nina. And I thought as we kick off, maybe we could actually start with a quote from your book. Hopefully that's not embarrassing for people to read back quotes of your own amazing book to you, but I just love it so much. And I thought a great place to start for this conversation would actually be where you write, where is the place your body is anchored? Which body of water is yours? Was that one of the first things that you wrote? How long ago did you write that? And what were you feeling when you began to write about swimming? Yeah, thank you, Freya, firstly, for having me. And um, that quote that you read actually was one of the very first things I wrote. Um, So long before the book was a book, um, I just wanted to write a kind of experimental, weird, fragmentary essay about swimming um, because although I've been swimming my whole life and always loved swimming, I realised that I had not written about it a lot. So it was a new subject for me, and then I quickly realised I had a lot more to say. Um, So I wrote this essay, which had the same title of the book, Small Bodies of Water. And I wrote it just, I think, to submit it to this journal called the Willow Herb Review, uh, which is a really great journal, online journal, nature writing. So that was the beginning, but it it was a long while before that became anything else. I kind of... I realized that it was a starting point. And what a beautiful starting point it is. And I love the fragmentary aspect of it as well, because we kind of, I mean, pardon the pun, but we like dip and dive into so many different memories and times and places actually from your life. And that's really elegantly done because we just have this use of being able to dip back and forth in time. And I love how many places you explore because in the book we go from swimming in London and Hampstead Ponds, which is somewhere, you know, I've talked about a lot in this podcast, but also we're in Malaysia, Borneo, uh, Shanghai. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about what it's like to swim in all those different places. I actually went to Malaysia this year and it was my first time swimming somewhere where the water is almost like a bath. It was so warm. It was a completely different sensory experience to swimming in somewhere like London. Yeah. So I've, I lived in a few different places when I was growing up and then as well as that would often be visiting my grandparents in Malaysia in um, Kota Kinabalu. And I think that swimming was a kind of a constant, a kind of connecting force for me. It's interesting you mentioned um, swimming in the sea in Malaysia because I'm not even sure if I have swum in the sea or at least not recently in Borneo anyway. For me, it was all, it was, there are like several really vivid swimming pools in my memory, like these sort of swimming pools of my childhood. 
And um, it's always strange to revisit them and they're like smaller than I remember. <laughs> but these swimming pools, I was really interested in writing about kind of swimming pools as sites of memory and places where I was beginning to learn about myself and beginning to feel at home in my own body. So, yeah, I became interested in cataloging these swimming places as kind of, yeah, these like anchors. <laughs> There's a lot of water metaphors we can use here. But, yeah, and, and I found that writing about water actually gave me the kind of, that kind of freedom to really jump between places, to jump between different times, because I guess the many different bodies of water, these kind of became my my structures, which was really, really nice to kind of then give myself this creative license to go with the flow and, and see where it would take me. I feel like we're on a roll with, with puns now, just like go with the flow and anchored. And yeah, every time I kind of talk to anyone about this podcast, they're like, take the plunge, dive in every email I get. I love, I love all the water puns. I know. I didn't mean to, but it just kept happening. (laughs) And you know, the book is so expansive. There are so many themes you write about belonging, identity, relationship with your body and courage and what it means to be you or to be at home. And so having these idea of these bodies of water really ties it together. And I think I'm kind of reflecting on what you said about how it's only when you look back that you realize that that was a theme, because I mean, especially if we think about our first memories, learning to swim in a swimming pool, you don't really think about how far you've come until you reference that and look back. And I know something that you've written about a lot is how you feel maybe not always like brave would be a word to describe you, but then when you're in the water, it is a place of bravery. And I find that with myself in a different way of maybe I can be quite rigid or organized. And then in the water, I'm very playful and it really ignites a more childlike part of me. So being able to access something from quite long ago by memory and the memory of learning to swim, I think is really special. Yeah. I love that. I think it's similar for me because there's uh, definitely like a childlike pleasure and childlike freedom of um, taking yourself off to swim. And yeah, and I think for me, swimming has always not been about the exercise aspect, very much about movement, but, you know, not exercise (laughs) in any way. And I've just I've never been a person who enjoyed any type of exercise at all. It's still the case. But then swimming is a kind of is a type of movement that I can <laughs> that I can enjoy and feel more myself. Yeah, and feel stronger. And I don't know if you find this, but um, people sometimes ask me about like the differences between swimming and swimming in like lakes and or swimming pools versus the ocean, which I, I know like here in the UK is, is a very different thing. And I enjoyed reflecting on that in the book, I think, and how swimming in the ocean is, I love it, but it is like an inherently, it is a frightening thing, particularly in Wellington Harbour. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing dangerous in there, but still, you, you know, you can't see, you can't see your, underwater so it's not like swimming somewhere tropical but something about not being able to see actually like allows me to do it allows me to get in and that's so weird I know for some people many people it's the opposite like swimming at the pond in in the women's pond in Hampstead Heath some people can't get over the fact that the water is very murky not dirty but just murky and you know you can't see the bottom or anything but I actually prefer that like I don't want to see the bottom (laughs) yeah so I enjoy, I, yeah, I love talking about this and writing about this. That's interesting. My sister has a phobia and there's actually a particular word for it of anchors and chains when they go deep down and you can't see the bottom and the thought of touching it if she's ever on a boat or anything is like, oh, but I know, I, I know what you mean about the, the ponds because a lot of people will say, oh, it's really dirty. It's really muddy. I'm like, no, it's really, you know, it's fresh water it's clean compared to being in a swimming pool that has a lot of chlorine which to me I'd rather not 
have the chlorine, but it's interesting people's perceptions of, of water like that. And I, I definitely find there's a difference with the sea, I guess, because of the salt water, you feel so much more carried and held. And I have a real feeling of safety in some ways in my body, but I do get very nervous about the tides, especially if it's a choppy day, it can be really dangerous. And something that I've been doing is I've spent a year swimming in every tidal pool in Britain. And the main thing there that I've realized is that it's an impossible task because as soon as you begin, you keep finding more, but that's fine because it means I have endless tidal pools to go to. But that's been amazing because, you know, it's like a natural rock pool or body of water that's got a kind of man-made element, like some steps or a concrete wall, so that you're swimming in salt water that's filled by the tide, but you also have that protection and safety. So you can't get carried off by the current or get in a riptide. And that's been an amazing way to have the best of both. And I know that there's a lot of tidal pools in Australia. I don't know if you know of any in New Zealand, right? Yeah, so like I've heard of these tidal pools here in the UK and seeing pictures of some in Australia, they seem almost like mythical to me. I'm sure that we don't have any in New Zealand, although I may be wrong um, because there's plenty of coasts and beaches that I haven't swum at. But the other day I was doing an event and one of the final questions was like, where's somewhere you haven't swum that you want to swim? And I was really stuck and I can't even remember what I said. But now I've just realized I know that I need to swim in a tidal pool <laughs> because, yeah, I look at whenever I see a picture of one, I don't know, they pop up on my like on my Instagram because my Instagram knows me well. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> yeah, I need to. I really need to. So that's a good reminder. <laughs> okay, I'm going to send you a list. And there's a few not far from London. Margate has got, you know, two and that so you can get great fish and chips. They're very lucky. They're very spoiled there. And really nice communities. And I'm always finding more on Instagram. And as much as social media often feels a bit like the devil on your shoulder, for swimming, it's fantastic. Can you swim in them year round? There's no kind of... Yeah, you just have to kind of know the tide that some fill and then they kind of get covered. But you can swim year round. And it was interesting hearing you talk about the difference in your body and what it feels like to swim between rivers and ponds and the sea because I feel like the biggest difference I have is warmth I love the feeling of being in cold water and when it gets when it gets to summer and it's warm I find it kind of not the same so I'm almost a little bit excited for it to be September now and getting colder so that I can get that adrenaline rush in the same way do do you swim all year round no no I don't a few years ago started to swim like through the autumn so that's as far as I go and I have to say for me I do really love the warmth (laughs) Um, but I don't I don't need it to swim and I do get that intense pleasure when it starts to cool down a bit particularly uh, around now and October is a really gorgeous time to swim but I do sometimes like as it gets colder I am still the kind of swimmer that does need to slightly force myself to go but then once I do you know, I, I'm so glad that I went and I feel so much stronger afterwards, but it it does take me, like I sometimes do need to like force myself to walk to the pond on like a not so sunny day. And I've got friends who who do it year round, you know, and, and I'm so admiring of that. And I'd like to be that one day, maybe, you know, I think I realized that I with swimming kind of initially when I discovered this um, amazing community of swimmers at the women's pond and, obviously lots of women who do it year round. And initially I felt this pressure to become one of them, (laughs) as I'm sure a lot of us do maybe when we discover that, that people do this. And of course, my friend, uh, Jessica Lee, who you've spoken to on the podcast, she swims year round. She's amazing. But it's okay if that's not me, you know, I just, I just swim the way that I love to swim. And some days that means that I don't have energy or I'm, not feeling well enough and that's okay too and because the pond will be there still so I'm interested in in these times when we sometimes we can't access swimming or there's changes in our lives when just our relationship to swimming changes like for example at the moment like there at the moment there's these like chewing sounds in the background because I've got a puppy (laughs) and she is not very good at being left alone. So I've just not been able to do my usual autumn swims. And obviously, I so I don't have children, but obviously when um, childcare is a big factor in, in 
a, a huge life change for many people and so many other things, health and work. So yeah, I'm interested in that as well and trying to like not feel bad that at the moment I'm not swimming that regularly. I wish I could, but um, I know that I will again. <laughs> and as you say, it will still be there, which I think is really nice and very reassuring during the pandemic that these places weren't going away. And I think there was a huge appetite for reading photographs, conversation about stunning natural places. And this reminder that mountains and seas and ponds are going to, are going to be there. And I also totally relate to that, that thing of also feeling like a bad hobbyist of when you join a community and everyone loves it, you feel like you should be doing it all the time. And well, I haven't been as much as I should do, but of course you don't, you know, there shouldn't ever be guilt about things that you enjoy. Absolutely. I think I'm prone to, to those feelings, like just about anything that I want to like commit myself to. But over the course of the pandemic in particular, just trying to generally treat myself with more kindness as much as I can. So incredibly hard to be compassionate towards yourself. I don't know why that is, but especially when I ever find anything that's very good for me, I then kind of in a way use it as like a stick to beat myself. I'll be like, oh, diary writing has been so helpful and I really should be journaling every day and I haven't done it for three days. So I'm just an awful person. Whereas the fact that you're getting stars, you know, you would never speak like that to a friend about swimming or anything. And I think that that reminder that the community is there is wonderful, but then you feel like maybe not as dedicated to everyone in the community, especially at the ponds, because, you know, people have got their matching beanie hats and they're there every day and you're like, oh God. Yeah, they do. And lots of people, great friends that they meet like every day and know each other. And that for me is interesting because for me, swimming is very, is most of the time a very solitary activity. I don't know if it's been that way for you in your project of swimming in tidal pools, but I really love swimming alone. And I do sometimes swim with, or sometimes swim with friends. And then also my partner, David, um, he's actually, he loves swimming as well. At the moment swims more than I do probably. And so it's great. We swim together sometimes, but those swims are like really different and, and distinct from when I swim by myself, which is really interesting. That's so true. Yeah. Cause I have a, a friend, very close friend that I swim with and, you know, I moved recently and a big part of choosing where I moved was like, right, where well, I want to be near her and near the Lido so that we can meet and have coffee. And that's a huge, a huge part of my life. But, you know, we'll breaststroke and chat as we go in the slow lane, like kind of two old ladies and then have a coffee after. But that is completely different to when I'm there on my own, where I might then put my head underwater, feel, lead into my feelings in maybe a bit of a different way and have a lot more reflection and thinking time. And I think naturally sometimes being alone or having more time to go and do something on your own, although I enjoy it when I'm there, I often resist doing that, I think, as most of us do. So I I kind of probably don't give myself as much of that as I need and usually will revert to being like, are you around? Are you around for a swim? And I swim with my partner too. And that's also fun because I think that space when you have a romantic partner and you're in the water together is a beautiful place to be because it's so playful and, you know, you can kind of have water fun. And I really like that as well. Yeah, that's so true. I hadn't, I love the way you describe that because I think it's really special and I hadn't thought of it before, but yeah, we, we love to swim and this is really, really corny, but like thinking of, I think quite often we'll talk about like, oh, these great swims that we had like earlier on in our relationship, <laughs> like, like, oh yeah, we need to go back there and swim there. And when we, um, whenever we have a chance to maybe go somewhere for a long weekend or something, it will often be a base around swimming, which is really lovely if we're really lucky to have that. Cause I don't, at the moment, I don't really have any friends that live near me me or sort of within within like a walk or a short bus ride or anything so I've gotten yeah I really enjoy swimming on my own but it's it's very different swimming with a friend and in fact I'm not even sure when I last would have swum with a friend so yeah Uh, I love that um about you and David and just as I was researching this episode I actually came across a detail that you both 
met um, when you were cat sitting for him in Shanghai. And I'm obsessed with meet cutes in films and novels. And I don't think I've ever had a more adorable way to meet someone that's so lovely. Yeah, I mean, actually, uh, not to go into into detail or anything on your podcast, but we, we, we did already know each other. But so we met like we were in part of a poetry group, like an online poetry group. So I had met him, but we actually got together after I did cat sitting for him and our cat Otto now lives with us here in London so the same the same cat that's sweet (laughs) yeah that was going to be my next question is what happened to the what happened to the cat that brought you together oh that's still still our yeah still our baby (laughs) oh that's very sweet I love that uh and that's great that you have you know swims to special memories and places in your relationship as well as your book and as part of your identity I think it's a really nice exercise for anybody who's a writer or not to maybe think about some of those swims in their life as as kind of almost signposts in your own personal development or growth or journey through identity I think that's something I've been thinking about about a lot at the moment yeah definitely I think the process of putting the book together made me examine more closely all these different places I've swum and not just like the kind of picturesque or interesting places like rivers or coastlines but to like I mentioned before to to think about the swimming pool or the kind of maybe gross school swimming pools that I swum in Um, because my I only remember this recently but I went to a school in Wellington it was a private school it didn't have like I make it sound like it had its own swimming pool it didn't but there was this like concrete completely empty during the winter months this sort of concrete pool but it was really shallow so I hesitate to call it a pool and it was just like right in the middle of the playground and it would be in summer I think somehow be filled with this like freezing chlorinated water now that I think about it it was such a hazard and I'm not even sure (laughs) so bizarre so bizarre and it was very short-lived like I feel like they filled it in um, when I was in like year four or something. So I have this very, very vague memory, but I just, it was so cold and the bottom was like, was painted that kind of swimming pool, ice blue color, but it was always filled with like leaves from this oak tree above. It was such a strange and like unpleasant <laughs> school experience, but yes. Yeah, so, so writing the book made me think about these early, early swimming memories. Yeah. I definitely have memories like that of, uh, we used to go to a nearby, school that had a, a swimming pool and I remember oh horrible and being in the changing rooms and it all being like yeah lots of leaves that not being very pleasant pleasant either and one thing I should say about your book is obviously as well as it just being beautiful and amazing is that you know the Nan Shepherd Prize which I also found about from Jessica J. Lee which really aims to promote and award nature writers from underrepresented backgrounds which is amazing I'd love to chat to you about what that was like to win and also to be in that space and kind of be called a nature writer did you consider yourself a nature writer before this book I didn't really and I didn't feel like I had a strong like background knowledge of the genre of nature writing which here in the UK is very well established um it's quite popular so um, yeah, I felt very much an outsider to the, that whole field. But something about the application process of the Nan Shepherd Prize, the way, I guess I came across it on social media, I'm sure. And they have like a number of really great resources on their website and so much guidance. And it was clear to me that the, one of the key goals of the Nan Shepherd Prize was really broadening the field of nature writing and all that the genre can contain and embracing books that might partly fit under that category but might also fit under other categories as well memoir travel writing maybe so that really interested me because I think I've always not seen myself in um kind of very clearly like in one genre of of writer or poet and I have been writing essays for a long time kind of creative non-fiction was actually one of the first writing workshops I ever took um, before I even really got into poetry 
And I would often be writing about landscapes, both urban and rural, human and non-human. And I think that water, um, in particular Wellington Harbour, or just the ocean in general, was very much like in the background of so much of my writing, both my poems and my essays. I think I am a nature writer, but I'm not just a nature writer. (laughs) Um, And I think so many writers and poets, we are constantly writing about natural environments and our body's relationship to them. So, yeah, I I kind of, I believe, (laughs) I do believe in the category, but also am often writing beyond it. Yeah, writing beyond it is, is, I think, so, so true. And maybe we'll talk a little bit more about how your writing also touches on food as well and so much more than nature. And I think the Nan Shepherd Prize actually is just been a wonderful place to discover writing as well, as well as the Willow Herb Review, which really looks to promote nature writing from writers of underrepresented backgrounds, because I think it's just an amazing way to be in touch with that exploration that nature writing can also mean. For me, nature writing used to be, you know, white man goes on an adventure, discovers or conquers something. And I also thought that it was quite out of bounds as a genre because you had to have so much knowledge. You had to know the name of every plant and bird. And if you're just a normal person who loves nature and wants to write about that experience, you don't, I always assumed that it had to come with a level of knowledge, credibility, reputation. And so now finding writers where they're writing about their homes, not from a place of authority like per se but more as love and their experience and that has just been really helped me redefine what nature writing is and helped me really enjoy the genre I never used to really read read it much before and your work was definitely I think one of the first ones that really got me going on on that train Mm, that's amazing and I feel just the same I think I felt before that yeah you absolutely um had to be some kind of expert, um, perhaps biologist or historian of some kind. And certainly those books, you know, there's incredible value in those in those books and the work that those writers do. But yeah, I, I think it's very different. And I think it's probably Jessica J. Lee's book it was kind of the first of its kind. Um, so her book called Turning, that was such a, a quite a life-changing book for me kind of the first time that I saw something of my own experience, you know, not, not like an exact mirror of my heritage or childhood or anything, but just so much of it resonated with me and made me realize that I could also write about myself and the landscape and the way that she does. But of course she is an environmental historian and has studied botany and things. So she has all this incredible knowledge, but I did still kind of begin to see that there was perhaps a space for me just to kind of write about being a poet, going on swims and writing about the the process of learning more about these places and plants, as you say, and history as someone who's not an expert at all, but is just a normal person. (laughs) Yeah. Turning is just such a phenomenal book. It's so, I think it's probably about time I revisited it again uh, as it's been a while since I've read it. And like you say, that element of like, botany and discovery is so rich with amazing details and I remember one of the things she writes about is about where some of the plants on Hampstead Heath come from and actually tracing that back through time and history through an interest in plants and I used to be really intimidated by that kind of thing of I don't know I don't know the name of all the trees and now I'm a lot more open to it with curiosity and I think reading books like yours and Jessica's have opened my eyes to that and it's amazing when you're swim or your enjoyment of nature is enriched by having that curiosity of looking around you and going I wonder what that plant is and then learning the name for it learning where it's from understanding how long it will be flowering or in bloom and then by that kind of also feeling the seasons change I found that as I've begun to understand and learn more about nature my experience in my body and in seasons and in a time and place has really felt more anchored down and that's been really lovely Mm, I love that too and I think I have a similar experience I like what you said about the seasons in particular because I think when you go for a swim you're 
experiencing weather in in a very different way I mean sea swimming in particular but just to yeah like on a on an autumn day to go and put your body in quite a cold lake (laughs) is a really unique way to then experience autumn and to notice like the different leaves that have fallen on the pond and the kind of slightly different color of the water and obviously temperature is the big one so I've really enjoyed thinking about the transitions between seasons which for me I am paying like such close attention to as a swimmer and I think yeah for for those of us who swim a few times a week or have that kind of regularity you notice change at a much closer level definitely I think that's quite new for me I've spent a lot of my life always being in a bit of a rush and always looking very forward of what I'm going to do rather than what I've done and in some way having swimming or just being more taking more of an active and keen interest in nature has helped me have a track whereby I'm experiencing change and transition kind of in tandem. Because if I'm thinking, oh, the last time it was this cold last year, how much have I changed and grown in that time? Or, oh, we're moving into out of summer now. And that's it, it kind of helps me be a little bit more in the now and also in some ways the, the past by being in seasons. Does that make any kind of sense? Yeah, I think so. For me, yes, and because I moved to London nearly four years ago, or is it nearly five? Uh, <laughs> cannot can't remember. <laughs> but it, so I guess it's been sort of three years that I've gotten to know the women's pond as a regular swimming space, and I feel really lucky, well, for, to have access to it and to be within sort of a half an hour walk of the pond is incredible. And now also to have gotten to know the way that it changes throughout the year, to appreciate the, um, yeah, the, the plants, the gardens, the meadows, which the lifeguards keep really beautifully, the birds, well, and it's definitely become a really important place for me. And I really, I think without the pond, I don't think London would in any way kind of be able to be my home in the way that it is. Yeah, it's it's interesting as well that you mentioned birds because one of my favourite bits from your book is where you're talking about all the names of the beautiful birds at the ponds. And I've, you know, when you go and see some of the gorgeous, what is the, I actually don't even remember the name of the gorgeous birds that appear in autumn that have like a red, an orange crest. Yes, um, I also, I know the birds that but all, I'm really bad with <laughs> names and when I put them in my writing it's because I've like really looked that up and like really checked it and <laughs> so yeah I'm not okay. sure but I'm gonna add it great, to the show yeah. notes because I know that I know it somewhere but I guess this is the point as well that to enjoy all these things you don't have to remember the name but I remember that being able to be that close to such an incredibly beautiful bird while I was swimming was just an amazing experience and I loved reading you writing about learning the names the British names for lots of these birds and then also how that compared to your experience growing up and how the names there in some ways feel more familiar and I think in general one thing I loved about your book is how many different languages there are there and in my chat with Jessica J. Lee she was talking about how it's often the tradition in nature writing to italicize words in different languages but by doing that we really other them and there was such an abundance of word and language and curiosity for words and names and nouns in your book that really got me excited to just spend more time being in your head and experience as well. I'm so glad. Um, Yeah, I think in that respect, I learned so much from Jessica, but also a lot from poetry, from lots of poets, particularly some amazing Asian American and British Asian poets who have incorporated non-English words into their poems so I think, and, and that's a really important part of my poetry. And so it was really natural for me to then apply it to my writing and prose. But it's so true that it's important aspect of nature writing the whole italics or not italics because we're often referring to species, specific species and we're often um, trying to be very detailed and exact and accurate. But I think 
what I learned from Jessica's work is in um, questioning those systems of knowledge, how we use Latin names versus using indigenous names for certain plants and things. And in New Zealand, there's lots and lots of Māori names of birds and plants, which are to me totally commonplace and just part of my linguistic world completely. So I, I just, I really wanted to reflect that and I wanted the book to reflect uh, my, yeah, my varied linguistic world. And luckily, you know, my editor at Canongate was 100% supportive and there was no point where I needed to kind of um, push for something or anything like that, which I was certainly worried about. So I feel really lucky in that respect because I think it's in the editing phase where maybe an author might encounter some pushback in terms of conventions like italics or using other languages. But no, I was really lucky and was really supported. That's amazing. I think that's so important when it comes to breaking these quote unquote rules or boundaries that we have to different parts of experiencing nature for people to be willing to push those and change and change them and see what art and experience can be created after that. I would love to hear more about what poets have inspired you there. One of my favorite poems about swimming is by Hannah Lowe from her collection Chick. And I can't remember what it's called, but I will put it in the show notes. It's a beautiful poem about walking through Brixton on the way to Brockwell Lido, knowing that you're going to have a swim. And she describes what she can smell in Brixton Market, what she can hear and the noises of the birds and all of her scent as she kind of goes through her senses. It really reminds me when I'm on my walk to a swim, I often think about that poem and almost doing a checklist of bringing an awareness to my senses as as I go in some kind of almost meditation. So I love that poem. Mm, that's beautiful. And I really love Hannah's work, but I don't know that poem. So tomorrow I work in a library and um, tomorrow I'm going to check, I'm going to look in that book and read it. So that's lovely. I feel like there are a lot of wonderful poets writing about water and swimming I love Elizabeth Jane Burnett's book. Um, I think it is called Swims, although I may be wrong, but she's an amazing swimmer and has written lots of quite short poems, very exact in her language. And another poet, Polly Atkin, um, who is actually writing a memoir, which is really exciting. She lives in the Lake District and she wrote an amazing essay a few years ago, which was published in Ake magazine about swimming as a disabled person, as a chronically ill person and her relationship with water and this, this outdated idea of a kind of nature cure, which is really complex and, and quite flawed. In terms of language though, I think it was, Mary Jean Chan, whose book Flesh had a really big impact on me and the way she uses Chinese characters in Cantonese. So yeah, so many, so many great poets. And I can never like <laughs> remember the the ones I want to speak about most. But yeah, those are three really important ones. Yeah, I kind of put you on the spot there. I love Mary Jean Chan's work and realize now that I've been pronouncing her collection wrong for a very long time. Um but Oh, I don't know if I was correct because I think it's a French word. I don't know idea. <laughs> oh, I love it's such an amazing collection and was actually one of the first because I would go to the library for poetry books because I was never kind of sure about committing to buying one if I wasn't sure. And it's only really in the last year that I've probably got properly into poetry. And that one was the first one that I bought because I was like, I'm going to buy this because I love it and I'm going to be able to revisit it again and again. And I know some of the places that she mentions, like the climbing centre and uh, in, I guess, kind of around like northeast London. I remember being like, oh, she's from London. These are poems in London. I love it. So uh, and I will definitely have to check out Polly's work because the Lake District is an amazing place to swim. The water is so cold there because it's just come off the mountains that it's like swimming in a different world. It's amazing. Yeah, I haven't been there. Really want to. Really want to go. She posts her Instagram is like just these gorgeous shots of her like underwater. Yeah, it's so beautiful. <laughs> oh, amazing. Okay, well that's a memoir to look forward to. And you mentioned that you work in a library, which I didn't know, which must be an amazing job. I've got a very romantic idea in my head of what that must be like. But I also 
read that when you first moved to London, you gave cooking lessons at school. And I have to chat to you about cooking because so much of your amazing writing and essays and poem is based around food. Yes. Um, for me, yeah, I am a person who is like always thinking about what I'm going to eat next. And so, <laughs> so I think writing about places, writing about cities and writing about memories for me is inseparable from food. And so I'm always coming back to it. And one thing that I'm really glad about with my book, um, Small Bodies of Water, is that I, I managed to shoehorn a lot of food writing in there <laughs> uh, because, yeah, I think a, a lot of the book is about the body um, and like how we experience landscapes, what it feels like to grow up, moving to lots of different places and to grow up uh, with like multiracial heritage. And all of that is just like so deeply entwined with food for me and what I cook and what I eat and meals that I share with other people. And also I just am kind of struck as you're talking about all of that, that, you know, one of the parts in your book that I mentioned that struck me was when you say, uh, you know, I feel most brave in the water, but also writing small bodies of water is such an incredibly brave and courageous thing because when you were setting out to do it, thinking about everything that you just mentioned there that you wanted to include in this book really is such a feat. And also then going against kind of the written expectations of what a book should be. I can imagine it must have been, there must have been maybe quite a feeling of, oh, well, I can't do food and swimming because that's, you know, not that's, oh, and I, I should lay it out like this. I kind of have to have a normal linear time structure, but instead you've really created something that's incredibly unique and trusted yourself and your readers that all of it comes together. And it totally does in this amazing dreamlike way, but you're definitely, you're brave on the page as well as in the water. <laughs> I really appreciate that. And I think you're yeah, I think you're right, actually. <laughs> it's a really good good reminder. But um, yeah, in, um, in swimming and then also I think in creative things. So for me, that is mainly writing. But also during lockdown, I taught myself how to sew. So that's my new creative thing. And in that, I also feel quite brave. <laughs> so I think that, yeah, and I think it's that over the it's 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 something that's built up over the years though of course like you know 10 years ago was probably when I was really just starting out testing what kind of writing I enjoyed doing and, and starting to read more widely and obviously at that stage you know I was absolutely just still learning but now um I do think that I've gradually over time having made amazing friendships with other writers and met all kinds of other writers and read lots of really interesting experimental works of prose and poetry that has led me to have more of this confidence to decide yeah this book's not going to be like a conventional memoir with a kind of beginning and a middle and an end and instead it allowed me to break it down into parts and decide like this is going to actually going to be a collection of essays and each essay will be distinct, but also somehow the whole thing will be connected. <laughs> and that last part, I really wasn't sure about, you know, I didn't know if it, it was holding together very well. And so for that, I really, I did kind of just trust and hope that it would work and, and that if a reader got a bit lost or if someone picked it up and thought, you know, this isn't for me, that's okay. And it just means that that person is not my reader um, or it's just not the right time for them, you know, completely fine. Or maybe they pick up and read one essay and enjoy one, but not the others. That's fine. <laughs> just to think of that. I'm kind of writing this more for myself and in the, in the very early stages of writing anyway, just kind of not yet thinking about any readers at all, because then it would be really hard to write anything, I think. So yeah, slowly, I think I've built this confidence and bravery. That is very wise. And I think um, trust and hope are two words 
it's my birthday soon and I usually try and almost have like a word for the year ahead which sounds kind of corny but that's fine and maybe maybe trust and hope will be will be mine I think those are two quite optimistic ones and also two that really partner courage and creativity if you're going to really try something and leap forward with it uh, having trust and hope is kind of vital and those two words also kind of they kind of make me think about the environment and about the climate and having to trust and hope in all of us and our reaction to the climate crisis, which is something that I feel like, you, which is a big, a big and daunting topic to not only write, but think about. And that connection with water, I think really comes through in your writing. What, what are your feelings about that very big topic and how you presented that in your book? Mm, yeah. It is so daunting and, you know, I didn't set out to like explicitly write about it, but then also I absolutely could not avoid writing about it in any way. I guess it is in the background or, some, you know, and then some days at the forefront of every day these days, which is a really heavy thing that, our generation is bearing and has borne for a long time. So I guess I wanted to write about it from, again, from the experience of a normal person. And I didn't know where to start because I felt like, you know, what value does this piece of writing have? I'm kind of reflecting on global news at the time. Like I think this was in 20. 20 and there was some really catastrophic forest fires in Australia as there are every year but kind of every year worsening there was always some kind of catastrophe that I was paying attention to and I was interested in writing about the effect of this on you know mental health as well but I don't have any answers for how to write about it and I think I'm still figuring this out and only that I wanted to make a record of what it of what it felt like to be trying to write this book about bodies of water and about heritage and language and food and migration at this particular time as someone who's, you know, not a historian or climate scientist or anything, as someone who just like has a lot of anxiety. (laughs) And that's really all that I could do with the book, you know, and just trying to, always trying to learn more and looking to writers like Robin Walker on our relationship with the natural world. I think I learn so much from like Maori indigenous writers in New Zealand as well. So yeah, it's really daunting, but it was also, it, it was healing in some respects to write the book, I think. And that book is a very generous offering. You know, you kind of mentioned what value does this add? And I worried about what I had to offer and writing about that experience is a generous thing to give up into the world. And especially if you, you know, we spoke earlier about why is it so hard to be compassionate towards yourself. And if you think about the offerings that some of your favorite writers have given you, it's a lot easier to put that into perspective. And you mentioned um, Robin, is that book, is it Braiding? Braiding Sweetgrass, yeah, Braiding Sweetgrass. This has kind of become more of a book club, which I love. So hopefully everyone will enjoy all of our recommendations of poets and books uh, to kind of continue the the swimming experience. And one more book that I should mention that you might like. I don't know if you've read 21 Miles um, by Jessica Hepburn. Oh, because it's full of food and post-swim snacks. Um, She sets out to swim the channel and the the English Channel Swim is 21 miles. So she meets 21 women and to eat with them to fatten up to get ready to swim the channel because you need some body insulation for that challenge. And it's about the meals she has with women while she talks about what motherhood means. And I loved hearing her write about food and swimming in that as well. Oh, sounds amazing. Absolutely going to check it out. Tell me about some of your favourite post-swim snacks. Mm. (laughs) The most important question. That's such a great question. Well, in summer, actually not just in summer, but probably mostly in summer, I will like make my way straight to the ice cream truck after my swim, <laughs> which is a very like, I guess, Hampstead Heath 
particular kind of thing that I can do. But that's probably my absolute favorite thing. And I think the last time actually that I went for a swim with Jessica Lee, we got ice creams afterwards, which was fantastic. But then, yeah, it's tricky. Like for me, I've got kind of a complicated relationship with food, like lots of us do. And swimming makes me so hungry. And, you know, this is very normal. But it does mean that I have to like plan, you know, when I'm going to swim so that I can, because I lose energy really, really quickly after swimming. And so I do have to have a snack on me or like just plan it really well and think ahead and kind of make sure that I can do the walk home, which is up some hills. So, so yeah, so that means that I'll always have like a, a banana, which is not interesting in any way, but just, I always need to have like banana and some, <laughs> some fruit or something. But I think, yeah, meals or like picnics that you have after swims are some of the best, some of the absolute best things. Yeah. I'm the same. I love to plan, probably plan my swimming trips. I plan most holidays around where I'm going to swim and where I'm going to eat afterwards. Yes. So if there's any tidal pool in the UK and anyone wants the nearest great place to have lunch, I'm your girl. Cause I'm like, know all the great fish and chip shops in Scotland near tidal pools. And, um, Oh wow. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> one of my, my current post swim, well, it's not even a snack. It's just a whole lunch is the Brockwell Lido has a great pizza place after. And they do a pizza with goat's cheese and rhubarb puree. So the sweetness in the cheese is amazing. Or I walk to Hun Hill Market and they have an amazing Sicilian deli and they do these arancini balls that are <laughs> about the size of a very large orange. And they have one there that has mozzarella and, and duja, I think is how you say. So that's one of my other favorite snacks for after a swim. You've reminded me actually that one of the best like Lido cafes I've ever been to was in... Hathersage in Yorkshire there's this amazing Lido open air it's open all year round I think and it's heated as well and we went there in winter and it was really beautiful but there's this amazing cafe attached to it and I had I think I was just so hungry and I was quite cold I just had this incredible pizza it was like it was one of the best yeah one of the best feels that I had on that trip and it was like full of um, all these lovely old ladies who'd just been out on these like bird watching walks and lots of swimmers as well and everyone just having having their cup of tea and their burger their pizza so good oh gorgeous that sounds lovely yeah okay I've got one more seeing as we're doing other lidos there's a, an amazing outdoor pool in Bristol Clifton area that's very fancy and beautiful and they have a bar that kind of sits above it so you can look down on the pool while people are swimming lanes and you can get a glass of wine and scallops there it's quite fancy but we went for a friend's birthday and that was a very nice post-swim. I mean, post-swim, it was kind of more of a little paddle, but a post-paddle meal was very nice. I'm really glad that we were able to end on swims because now we're just about both ready to go and have a swim and lunch. But Nina, it's just been so lovely to chat. Hopefully it's been enjoyable for everyone listening to hear about your writing and the writing of other people who have just really written about the experience and joy of swimming in such beautiful ways so thank you so much thank you so much for having me really really a joy to talk to you about swimming in such detail and learn about lots of new places to swim so super exciting thank you to nina for that wonderful chat you can get small bodies of water wherever you normally buy your books and you can pre-order my book the tidal year via the link in the show notes see you next week